Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the tobacco sale age goes up to 21 in Minnesota, and Alexandria Nonprofit is doing what it can to help get food to people in need amid COVID-19 and an update on Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference postponements from MIAC Commissioner Dan McCain. But first, will Minnesota public school students return to the classroom this fall, or will they have to continue distance learning because of COVID-19? Governor Tim Walls outlined this week under his emergency powers how that will play out, and MNN's Bill Werner has the details. Scott, the governor's announcement came as state health officials said they're concerned about where the COVID pandemic is headed in Minnesota. The last time we had hospitalization and ICU usage this high, was a month ago. And the increase in the number of COVID cases is accelerating in Minnesota, said the state health department's Chris Ayersman. There could be a time when we do need to dial back if if the things that we're seeing continue to go in an unfavorable manner. All the scenario planning that the schools and school districts have been doing over these last months is important and valuable because it's very possible that uh, that schools will be using more than one model during the school year. State Health Commissioner Jan Malcolm means school districts possibly switching back and forth between in-person classroom instruction and distance learning, depending on students' age and the course the pandemic takes. We are struggling with and figuring out, and we know we have to get our kids back in school. It's the safest and the best place for them to be able to grow as people. And we need to make sure that that safety extends to their physical health. Some teachers in the Twin Cities in particular continued urging the governor not to allow in-person classroom instruction, at least for the start of the school year. Nick Faber, president of the St. Paul Federation of Teachers. If you've ever tried to have 30 kindergartners uh, social distance from each other um, and not share their crayons and not put things in their mouths and not sneeze on each other, that's pretty hard to do. And Faber said for older students, Class sizes are so big, um, trying to get kids to be able to social distance within some of our buildings is nearly impossible. Denise Speck, head of the Education Minnesota Teachers Union, said she believes some schools are ready to fully reopen because they have classrooms large enough to accommodate spacing plus other resources. But I do know that there are some schools that are just not ready to open completely. Um, Perhaps uh, they don't have enough staff. Perhaps they haven't figured out busing. Maybe they don't have enough cleaning supplies to start. I want to be in school. I love my students. But I think that there are so many things that are going to prevent us from doing a good job under these conditions that we need to continue with distance learning. West St. Paul teacher Sarah Lund, a survey by the Education Minnesota Teachers Union, found only 17% of its members support going back to fully in-person classroom instruction this fall. Nearly one-half say distance learning should be continued. 29% prefer hybrid classes. On Thursday, the governor's announcement. Each individual school district in Minnesota will work with state officials to evaluate local spread of COVID and that district's preparedness before deciding whether students there are back in the classroom this fall or distance learning continues or a combination of the two. And the governor said the state will also work with school districts to determine if they need to dial between the various learning methods depending on the progression of COVID in their particular community. This plan alone won't work if community spread accelerates. This plan won't work if people choose to gather in large groups and we get it if it's asymptomatic. And what that will end up doing is it will end up impacting our children. And again, it's not their 
their fault. COVID's not their fault. The Walls administration says its plan preserves local control by school districts, but Republican Senator Carla Nelson from Rochester questions that. Everybody believes that more guidance, more science is important, but the governor's comments, the comments from his staff uh, make me very concerned about whether it's guidance or a mandate. Walls responded his plan. It's not perfect. I wish there was a way that I could tell you, yep, this is going to happen. When people say open schools, that's not a plan. That's a slogan. We all believe we need to get our students back there. Nelson responded, local decisions are the best way to do that. I don't know any school district that would choose to disregard the science, nor do I know any parent who would send their child to a school if they felt it was not safe. The governor responded COVID case guidance in his plan for school districts is not drawn in stone. Maybe a situation like we saw in Marshall and we saw in Austin where it was tied to a business that was a place where we could get a handle on it and get relatively quickly. We could still, in theory, be able to operate our schools in that. Parents and educators want and they need clarity on what the school year will look like. But they did not get that today. He said Senator Nelson, who argues the governor's announcement should have come six weeks earlier, not this close to the start of the school year. Education Minnesota Teachers Union President Denise Speck responded, if school districts don't have enough time to decide on classroom instruction or distance learning before the school year begins. Let's start a little later if we're not ready. There's no need to frustrate students and families and staff when we can just be flexible. State Health Commissioner Jan Malcolm acknowledged COVID cases will crop up in Minnesota schools this fall. The key will be how well can we um, identify that, assess that, and control that right away. Deputy State Education Commissioner Heather Mueller promised every K-12 student in the classroom will receive a cloth face mask plus three extra disposable masks. And that's because, quite frankly, a lot of us might forget them. And we never want a face mask to be a reason that a student isn't able to come into the building. And Mueller said every K-12 teacher will receive a cloth face mask and a clear face shield. And will also have one COVID test available to them. Education Minnesota Teachers Union President Denise Speck said about that. I think that most educators will appreciate the thought. I think it says that the state of Minnesota cares about their safety. Um, I would say that it probably isn't enough. Scott. Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. You, my friend, have connections in the government. Yes, you. USA.gov, the official source for government information on thousands of topics. And like any good connection, there's no telling where it can take you. Why, one day you're getting student loan information. Next thing you know, you need job hunting tips. Today's road construction info could have you searching for telecommuting ideas tomorrow. The more you use USA.gov, the more uses you'll find for it. Passport applications, for example. They've been known to lead to a sudden interest in travel advisories. Our new mobile apps will even update you on the go. So whether you have information to get or ideas to give your government, check out USA.gov. Who knows? Lottery results today could lead to retirement planning tomorrow. USA.gov. With the right connections, there's no telling where you can go. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. On Saturday, August 1st, the tobacco buying age in Minnesota is officially raised to 21. I recently spoke with Laura Smith with Minnesotans for a Smoke-Free Generation about what this important law means for youth throughout the state. 
Well, this is really a landmark day for Minnesota. On August 1st, the tobacco sale age statewide becomes 21 following a federal law that went into effect in December. This is a really important step toward uh, reducing youth tobacco use and preventing youth addiction, and we really hope uh, that it's the first of many steps to prevent youth uh, addiction to tobacco in all forms. You sort of addressed my next question in that answer, but uh, if you could maybe (laughs) just sort of reiterate a little bit, what is the goal of Tobacco 21? Tobacco 21, we know, will reduce youth tobacco use and save lives, so it helps get tobacco products farther away from young people, especially in the 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, because we know that there are a few 21-year-olds in their social circles, but many 18-year-olds. So the goal is to make it harder for youth to access these products. And you said that uh, Tobacco 21 is hopefully an important first step. What are some of the other steps that you think need to be taken to curb uh, especially youth tobacco use? Ending the sale of all flavored tobacco products and investing in youth tobacco prevention are really the next two things that we'll be working on. We know that those work together with Tobacco 21 to help reduce youth tobacco use and make it so that we're attacking the youth tobacco epidemic from all angles. And obviously lawmakers coming back for the regular next session in January. What will be some of the more significant pushes that Minnesotans for a Smoke-Free Generation will be touting in the next legislative session? Well, there's a really urgent need to invest in sustainable prevention funding, especially when it comes to tobacco. Um, Clearway, Minnesota will be sunsetting in 2021, so we're facing a really big gap in prevention for youth. So that's the main thing that we'll be asking lawmakers to find sustainable ways to invest in those kinds of um, youth prevention that Clearway typically has done over the years. And we're also working to end the sale of flavored tobacco products, including and especially menthol tobacco, because we know that they not only attract youth, but lead to the kind of uh, tobacco-related health disparities that we find really unconscionable and in Minnesota. Laura, I know we t- when we talked before, uh, after the, the federal change was enacted, it, it seemed as though that there was some confusion on what the actual law was. Is that the case here at the state level as well, or do you think people are pretty much on the same page about what it means? Well, we hope that there isn't too much confusion. You know, the state has had a lot of runway to prepare for the 21 law going into effect. And one of the sources of confusion was the difference between the federal law and the state law. And one of the reasons we really supported getting this done this year was so that there's no further confusion. 21 is now the state tobacco age and the federal tobacco age. And I think that the Minnesota Department of Health has also been working with retailers to make it clear that this law is going into effect and providing the kind of resources they need and training to ensure strong compliance with 21. I'm curious if you can give me a little bit of perspective on how uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the efforts to try to curb youth tobacco use. Obviously, uh, any kind of tobacco use during this pandemic is not good. It's especially not good for children, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. So I think that the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as, you know, the recent vaping-associated lung injuries that the Minnesota Department of Health mentioned uh, or announced on Friday, really underscore the need for strong public health measures and keeping our lungs healthy, and that's all ages, but especially our youth. Um, so we, we hope that it, there continues to be emphasis on keeping lungs safe. Um, we know that nothing is 
uh, safer than <laughs> clean air for your lungs. And so we want to make sure that we do everything possible uh, to make that happen. And unfortunately or um, understandably, the legislature's work kind of shifted to the, the COVID-19 response. And so we hope that we'll pick up next session some of the other uh, bold tobacco prevention policies that we started advancing in this legislative session. Thank you to my guest, Laura Smith, with Minnesotans for a Smoke-Free Generation. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters, a Minnesota nonprofit started by two friends in Alexandria to help deliver groceries to people at the start of the COVID-19 crisis is still going strong nearly five months later. J.W. Cox tells us how Helping Hands Alexandria is continuing to adapt their mission to serve the community. Scott, it was a simple concept at first that required an extraordinary amount of work, and Helping Hands founder Kelsey Tim says she never thought her inspiration in the early spring would still be a reality in late summer. I probably would have laughed because I was really tired in April and March, uh, but we just put up some boundaries so that there would be longevity and just having kind of more working hours. And so I think because of that and then just that people still want to help, Um, that we've been able to continue on with this group. The project got off the ground thanks to Tim and her friend Natil Dahmer. Their original scope was quite narrow. Grocery runs and pharmacy runs for the people that needed to stay home, the people with compromised immune systems, the elderly are those that were just afraid to leave their house, and it has expanded into so much more than that. The community is just amazing. I would dare to say daily we're receiving checks in the mail so that we're able to continue blessing people. We never know what's going to come our way, but as we pour out, it, our funds are always replenished. The volunteers, new people will say, hey, I want to help. And so that part's just been really cool, taking it day by day and just seeing people rise to the occasion to fill the need. But once the duo made some headway in their original mission, they saw more and more needs in the community and have pivoted over the last five months to meet whatever needs they could. We help coordinate the sewing of masks. That's been the PPE that was hard to find for the medical professionals. And so we had a small group of people that kind of rallied the troops, and our group was able to sew over 20,000 masks. We've done a decent amount with the nursing home residents. They've really been on our heart where we've rallied people to send cards and people have sewn flowers. We still continue to do grocery deliveries for them. Um, We provided radios. A lot of them are isolated. And so we had radios so they're able to listen to Praise Live where I work. We did some drive-by birthday parties. We did uh, Easter baskets for kids. For new moms, uh, gift baskets were put together since they weren't able to have visitors. During the George Floyd incident, we were able to send funds to other nonprofits that helped provide groceries for people that were affected. It's just a, just a wide range. Uh, when the tornado hit in our area, we were able to send about $1,000 worth of gift cards to three of the families that were really affected by that. Um, when The National Guard was deployed to head down to Minneapolis. We blessed families with uh, gift baskets. 
It kind of goes on and on and on. The biggest key for the success of Helping Hands, Tim says that's an easy answer. We wouldn't have been able to do all that we've done without the support of the community. There's no way. Even with the grocery runs, it started off uh, with Natil and I, and it grew so quickly that we just weren't even able to handle all the calls that were coming in. Like the longevity and just what we were physically able to do, we wouldn't have been able to keep this going if it wasn't for all of the amazing people that really said, hey, we want help. So we have a team of people that just do the groceries. And then as soon as a need comes in, it's filled, you know, within a couple days, if not a couple hours, depending on the need. So that part's just been amazing. The positive impact for those served is obvious, but there's been a behind-the-scenes reward for those doing the serving that Tim is grateful for. I think when we help others, it takes our focus off of the things that you can't control. We can't control COVID. We can't control the political world. Everything that broke out in the world, we can't control that. We can just control our own actions. Helping Hands has been a place of hope for people coming in and, and seeing the good in the world. And so I, it's been great to help facilitate that, uh, just giving back to others. I think that's so important for most people to overcome obstacles is to give back and to focus on other people instead of just the hard stuff in our life. Energized by her faith that this mission is backed and driven by God and powered with ever-increasing volunteer numbers, Tim says they are committed to keep finding ways to help. Really, we're just kind of giving this group a year to kind of see how things continue on. I, I feel honored to be able to help facilitate blessing at people and helping others. And so I hope that we're able to continue doing that. Um, I don't, this isn't great business planning. And it's not really a business, but I don't really know what the future holds. I'm really just taking it day by day, and I'm following my peace. And so I'm really just trusting God with it. And so when he wants us to be done with it, that's when I'll be done with it. Until then, I'm just taking it day by day. And as needs um, arise, bringing it back to the group and seeing how we can help our community. While Tim's focus is on the impact they can make in their community, she says they're more than happy to help anyone who feels inspired to start a similar group to help their own friends and neighbors. We've helped uh, Osakis and then another small town around Alexandria start a group for them. We haven't really spoken to people outside of our area. I don't know if there's other groups already like that throughout Minnesota. I'm sure there are. If people are wanting to start something like we have, we're more than happy to show them what we've done. They can even use our resources to get things started. Really, it just takes a couple people willing to lead the group, but it just takes a community to, to um, gather around the idea to be able to help people. And I think that's why um, Helping Hands did work, because there really wasn't something like that initially to help COVID, and so the community just rallied around the idea of the group, and that's why it's been so successful. More information can be found at helpinghandsalex.com. Scott, back to you. Thank you, JW. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Who might you save? Your mother, your father, your husband, uncle, aunt, son. Learn fast. F-A-S-T. The sudden signs of a stroke and you could save. Your friend, your best friend, teacher, boss, coach. F. Face drooping. A. Arm weakness. S. Speech difficulty. T. Time to call 911. 
F-A-S-T, Face Arm Speech Time. That's F face drooping, A arm weakness, S speech difficulty, T time to call 911. The sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in the recovery of your neighbor, the waiter, a fellow shopper, a total stranger, grandmother, grandfather. So learn F-A-S-T, the sudden signs of a stroke, then pass it on because you never know who might save you. Your wife, your colleague, teammate, mother. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference made the announcement this week that it's postponing cross-country, football, soccer, and volleyball for the fall of 2020 due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. The MIAC is working to develop spring schedules for those sports, which are considered medium or high risk for coronavirus transmission by the NCAA. Men's and women's golf and tennis, categorized as low-risk sports, will be permitted to compete against conference opponents only this fall. MN Sports Director Mike Grimm talked to the MIAC Commissioner Dan McCain about the decision and how they hope it works out. Yeah, certainly uh, COVID has had a, a major impact on collegiate athletics and uh, within the MIC, which is spread out across Minnesota uh, member institutions, we had to make a very difficult decision to uh, move many of our fall sports to the spring, which we've never done before. And that means we're going to pick up football, soccer, volleyball, and cross country and move that competitive season from the fall to the spring. We're still going to let them practice in the fall, which is a, I think is a good thing, and it's going to allow those students to come back and engage with their teammates and, and re-socialize on their campuses. But uh, this year is going to look much different for that set of uh, student-athletes. Take us through the process uh, in terms of coming to the conclusion that this is the, the, the proper route given the health situation. Who um, had the input? Uh, who did you, uh, you know, uh, consult with? Uh, I'm sure athletic directors, presidents, health officials, state officials, uh, kind of take us through that process because I'm sure it uh, obviously wasn't something that uh, the, the decision you guys took lightly. Yeah, it, it was a number of groups that we consulted with, and we started many months ago back uh, as soon as our spring sports got canceled last uh, last March, and uh, we started meeting with our athletic trainers, our athletic directors, the women administrators, and we started to develop a plan of how do we return to athletics safely and what made sound decisions. And, and from there, we started to meet with the Minnesota Department of Health. We, we engaged with the NCAA. And ultimately, we, we were pointing to being able to play this fall. We started initially eliminating non-conference contests to, to really shrink the, the pool of people that we were going to play and the, uh, the opportunities that really just focus on the safety of our campuses uh, of the MIC. But ultimately, it became uh, just a, you know, too difficult to figure out how, how, how are we going to move forward. We had one school, Carleton College, that had already announced that they were not going to sponsor competitive athletics or competition in the fall segment. Um, and, and ultimately, that's where we've gone with the rest of our membership at this point. But um, it really was about that safety of the student um, and the travel challenges, uh, along with the testing component. The NCA just uh, recently announced that there was going to be some testing recommendations for high-risk and medium-risk sports, and we also wanted to be good citizens. We knew that testing is not necessarily readily available throughout the state, and we wanted to make sure that those tests are available for those that really need it, not just testing asymptomatic uh, individuals so that we could play athletics at this portion. Once that changes, once testing becomes more available, 
uh, I think we'll we'll take a stronger look at that. Do you have uh, a timeline now, Dan, as well? When when we talk about moving it into the spring, these fall sports, what does the calendar now look like? Uh, when would football potentially start if all goes to plan? We're still uh, having those discussions, and we're gonna, we're engaging our athletic directors, our, our athletic training staff, and and our coaches to figure out what makes sense, what is going to be a, a, a good experience for those student athletes things are going to change and that's what i continue to tell everyone is that this year will look much different but we still want to provide that exciting opportunity because we know our communities love the the athletics uh, a football game this fall obviously it is exciting it is fun and we lead the attendance across the entire ncaa division three with football attendance and obviously uh this we will no one's going to lead it this year likely for the fall segment but we hope that we can be back in position to provide that in in terms of i, I think we're looking at around sometime in late march throughout april possibly into may would be a segment that we would compete uh, those fall sports into the spring you mentioned attendance i'd be remiss and and obviously this doesn't just impact football as you mentioned the there are obviously other fall sports but in terms of attention that saint thomas saint john's game would potentially the final one ever was going to be played indoors but for different reasons for big crowds for a big attendance uh, it was going to be important any word or any update on on if that can uh, be salvaged for the spring and, and and that they can play that game and whether it be indoors or wherever it might be that certainly is a, a marquee matchup the tommy johnny football game and anytime they come together in any sport um and and that's something that as we start to plan our spring season and how how we will lay out the contest uh, i want to make sure that that one is included in the schedule i think that's a a really special rivalry that uh, i want to see occur any chance that we have and so if, if we're in position to have that competitive season from the fall to the spring um we're going to make sure that that's on the docket Dan, what's the general feedback been like uh, once the announcement's been made, the decision's been made? Uh, obviously, people within the conference that were that were uh, decision makers knew, but now I'm, I'm talking alums, general fans, uh, you know, parents of players, all of that. As the word got out, what's the general feedback been like now in relation to this decision that that, that you've been hearing? Yeah, you know, definitely a lot of disappointment. You know, these student athletes, they're all going to school to get an education, but a a big part of their experience is playing athletics. And, you know, obviously there's seniors that are impacted that likely will not come back for another season. And and so I think they're just trying to, to wrap their heads around what does this mean for that that uh, experience for them on a campus. But overall, everyone understands the, the situation we're in. And, and I think they appreciate that health and safety is a, a driving force for us. And we're going to we're living what we say to make sure that we they know that we are trying to protect them. And at this point, they're just we're learning more and more about virus spread and testing. And so the good news is that we're going to have that competitive season in the spring. And that is exciting. And I think that gives hope for those individuals and anybody in our communities that follow MIC athletics and, and want to be involved at uh, whether it's a fan or we have a, a lot of officials and, and so there's there's a lot of people that I think we've given some hope to to say we're going to shift it and, and I think that's exciting. That's Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference Commissioner Dan McCain with MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. McCain says the conference will continue to monitor the health situation on a daily basis. That's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.